I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, you'll hear from longtime NPR Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep about his book, Imperfect Union, how Jesse and John Fremont mapped the West, invented celebrity, and helped cause the Civil War. It chronicles how this 19th century Western explorer and his well-connected wife became one of America's first political power couples. Here's our conversation from March 2020. Steve Inskeep, your third book is titled Imperfect Union, How Jesse and John Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War. Uh, what, why did you believe that the story of an early 19th century power couple would have resonance for people today? Oh, there's so many ways that it did. Uh, the first, I guess, is a little disturbing, that it's a story leading up to the Civil War, when the nation was very clearly divided into two political camps. Uh, and we live in a politically divided time, although I don't want to imply we're heading toward a civil war. I don't know what we're heading toward, but there's a resonance there in the way that we have red and blue states today. There were northern and southern states then that were fundamentally divided over this giant issue of slavery. But there are other things, too. The 1840s and 50s, when I set this story, was a time of enormous technological and economic change, particularly in the news media. The development of the telegraph came in 1844. Within a few years, all the major cities uh, east of the Mississippi were connected by telegraph wires, and there was suddenly an instantaneous national conversation, which becomes part of the story that I tell. It turns out that these communication devices that were designed to bring people closer together actually drove them farther apart. They were horrified by what people on the other side were saying. So there's that. There's also just the fact that it's a story of America. And it takes place in the same cities we know today, in many cases, and sometimes even in the same buildings. It is really inspiring for me to go into the Library of Congress and learn about things that happen in the United States Capitol, where I sometimes walk around as a reporter today in some of the same rooms. The building has expanded and changed since the 1840s and 50s, but it's fundamentally the same. So uh, we're going to spend an hour talking about these characters, but I wanted at the outset to do a more brief snapshot of each so people would have the stage set. Let's start with the protagonist, John Charles Fremont. You write that in 1850, a Philadelphia magazine claimed he was, quote, the most important person to walk the earth since Jesus. (laughs) Pretty big claim. So who was he? (laughs) Yeah, put him up there with uh, Christopher Columbus and George Washington as the most important figures since Jesus Christ. And that is a reflection of Fremont's genius with his wife's assistance in tying himself to the national story. The idea of the magazine writer was that Columbus discovered America, as they would have phrased it then, uh, contacted Europe with, uh, with the Americas, that George Washington was the founder of the United States, the greatest result of that discovery, and that John Charles Fremont brought the Pacific Coast into the United States. At the beginning of this story, the United States didn't have a Pacific coast. There was territory in Oregon that was disputed with Britain, and there was California, which belonged to Mexico. Fremont encouraged the American settlement of Oregon and took part in the American conquest of California just in time for the gold rush. And so he did play a real role in changing the map of the United States. But he was also brilliant at publicizing himself. 
In a way, publicity was the point. He was sent out by his father-in-law, a powerful senator, to explore the West. He didn't necessarily find that much that wasn't already known, but he would come back and write best-selling accounts of his adventures, and that was the purpose, to entice Americans to come West and settle the West and help make it part of the United States through this publicity showing how the trip could be made and how exciting it could be and, and how practical it really was. Publicity was the point. But in the process of making the West more famous, John Charles Fremont also made himself more famous, making himself not the first famous person in history by any means, but the first American celebrity to create his fame even as he was doing the things that he intended to be famous for. And he was doing it simultaneously. In a, and it was just a, a very original way to approach publicity at a moment when the news media were expanding and it wasn't really, hadn't really been possible before. And you list, oh, he went on, we should say briefly, and we'll talk about it more, to become the, uh, the first California senator for a brief period of time. Yes. And then a presidential candidate for the new Republican Party. Yeah. You list the many places named after him during that time. When did he fall out of the public consciousness? Not until sometime after the Civil War. He had this meteoric career. 1842, he's an unknown U.S. Army lieutenant, and he goes uh, to command his first great expedition in the West and publicizes it and very quickly becomes famous. By 1850, as we said from that quote from the magazine, hugely famous, hugely admired. His fame and his narrative, his story, was his primary qualification for being the Republican nominee, the very first ever Republican Party nominee in 1856. He didn't win but remained very famous and also very rich. He managed to, to get rich in the gold rush. Um, and then when the Civil War broke out, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican candidate who followed him, was president, named him a Civil War general, uh, and he got in a fight with Lincoln. Uh, Fremont was in charge in Missouri, and it was 1861, and the war was going very badly. It was a lot of chaos. There were a lot of rebels in Missouri, even though it was a Union state. It stayed in the Union. And General Fremont, as he was then, ordered freedom for the slaves of rebels in Missouri. No one up to that point had freed a slave. Lincoln had not yet freed a slave. He wasn't ready to do it, and he was fearful of doing it because there were several slave states still in the Union, and freeing a bunch of slaves at that moment might have caused them to go over to the other side. He asked John Charles Fremont to reverse his order or modify it. Fremont refused. He wasn't a guy who was really good with authority or following authority. And instead of following orders, sent his wife, his very politically active wife, Jesse Benton Fremont, back to Washington, D.C. to tell Abraham Lincoln what was what. Now, I tell you this now and answer your question because I don't think there's anybody in history who has come off well in later life or in history after having a quarrel with Abraham Lincoln. It's not a thing anybody has ever done and come off well uh, in the end. Uh, President Lincoln ultimately fired General Fremont, gave him a new assignment, and then fired him again. Uh, and Fremont, in later years after the war, lost his fortune in bad railroad investments, was in something near poverty, even though still very, very famous, and he and his wife had to support him themselves through his wife's writings, in part. She had to help support him in their later lives. They were scraping by, so barely. And his, his reputation had completely cratered by the end of his life to the point where, even though he was very popular 
And even though he'd helped to create the Republican Party, there were Republicans who'd supported him in 1856 who said, well, he was a really good nominee, but thank God he was never president because he turned out to have a terrible character. That's what they would say of him. So Jesse Benton Freeman, his spouse, who you alluded to several times, uh, so who was she? She was the daughter of a powerful United States senator from Missouri, Senator Thomas Hart Benton. Benton was a founder of the Democratic Party, a lawyer. He was also a ruthless and brutal man who owned slaves throughout his life and also fought duels and on at least one occasion killed a man. They dueled once. They wounded each other after trading insults. That's what caused the duel. And then Benton felt the man was still insulting him, so challenged him to a duel again at ten paces and shot and killed him. A brutal man. And yet also a kind of visionary who foresaw an American West that included the Pacific Coast who wanted that Pacific coast for a specific reason. He wanted there to be an American seaport pointing toward India and pointing toward China and creating a direct trade route from the United States to Asia. He, in effect, foresaw the global economy that we live in now, where the world's most important trading relationship in recent times has been across the Pacific between the United States and China. Benton at least dimly foresaw that and fought for the expansion of the American West. His daughter, Jesse Benton Fremont, was a kind of son to him. He took a long time as a husband and father before he got a son. He was disappointed that Jesse was not a boy, gave her a boy's name. Uh, she's named after his father, Jesse Benton. And she writes in a memoir, my father gave me early the place a son would have had. He took her hunting. He took her to the United States Senate when he was going to work. He took her as a girl to what we now call the White House to meet a variety of presidents, starting with Andrew Jackson, who, had, who took office in 1829 when Jesse was not quite five. Um, and so she grew up amid power and grew up in Washington and had ambitions, I don't want to say exactly to be a man or to be a boy, uh, but had ambitions to do things that only men were allowed to do. She had a moment as a teenager when she cut off her hair and went to her father and said, I want to check out of Washington society. I've just attended this very fancy society wedding of one of my teenage classmates being married off to a much older man. The whole thing is gross. I don't want any part of that. I've cut off my hair, and I want to live my life as your assistant. And this is the moment when her father was no longer comfortable with her acting like a boy. It was time for her to act like a woman, in his opinion. And so she had to grow her hair out, and she did end up leading, in many ways, a traditional life as a wife and mother with the traditional assigned roles, but in a way that I think is very familiar, in another way the story is modern, very familiar to many women today, fulfilled those assigned roles while also reaching out and finding ways to be involved in politics and to make a mark in the world, largely through uh, assisting and guiding and, and, and being the brains of 
her ever more famous husband. She was, in a way, his best publicist and absolutely his political advisor. So our third character was the Senator Thomas Hart Benton, and, and you've talked about him. His life seems so big that you could almost do a biography on him. Yes, yeah. Uh, he was a Jacksonian Democrat. What does that mean to me? Well, Jacksonian Democrat, uh, I mean, the simple thing is, is a supporter of Andrew Jackson, but there were a series of things that they believed in. Uh, and we could go through them. Some of them seem kind of archaic today. Democrats in those days opposed the National Bank, the Bank of the United States, which is the closest thing there was then to the Federal Reserve Bank that we have today. And President Jackson, with the support of people like Senator Benton, ultimately destroyed it. The Democratic Party of that time was for small-D democracy, for mass participation in elections, but we have to be utterly clear they meant mass participation of white men. All white men should be voting. All white men should be voting for the Democrats. But this was a pro-slavery party. At, on its best days, it was silent about slavery, and often it was explicitly for slavery, even though it was a national party and appealed for votes of working men and working farmers and immigrants, by the way, in northern states. It was essentially a pro-slavery party, and Senator Benton was part of that. So for me, and it's obviously for you as the storyteller, the fourth and probably the most important character was the United States itself. Yes. Uh, so as your story opens, uh, give me a snapshot of what the country was like. Well, if we could imagine uh, uh, what one historian has called the logo shape of the United States, you know, that, that with Florida down in one tip and Maine and, and California on the other side, the map wasn't all drawn yet. It didn't all belong to the United States at the beginning. The westernmost city in the entire United States of any consequence was St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, there were a few towns west of that, but nothing very important. And other than St. Louis and uh, bits of Louisiana, uh, at the very beginning, um, all the states were east of the Mississippi River. And what was the population like? The population was gaining rapidly. Uh, it was only two or three million at the time of the Revolution. By the time of my story, it's getting into the something over 20 million. By the time of the Civil War, just after my story, it's, I think, 31 million people. It's seen as almost doubling in a generation. The median age is very, very low. It's a very, very young country, uh, very rapidly expanding. Lots of immigrants coming in from Europe, from Ireland and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, a rapidly changing and evolving country. And a country where distances are shrinking. And here's what I mean by that. In 1800, if you were in New York City and you wanted to travel to St. Louis, it might typically take you six weeks to get there if you didn't have some disaster on the trip. By the 1840s, it was a mere 10 or 11 days to take that trip, and it was much safer and much more practical. And then by the mid-1840s and into the 1850s, the telegraph was making communication instantaneous and railroads were making travel even faster. So distances were shrinking across this country the size of an empire. It was becoming one country, but as I mentioned before, this was also revealing the differences between people in a very in-your-face way that was kind of hard to take and I think does remind me, as a 21st century citizen, of the way that social media sometimes shocks us, that we can't believe what other people who might be across the country or even our neighbors really uh, subscribe to. So uh, if you were one of those Irish immigrants, what would life be like for you? Life could be very hard. 
Not in every instance. I've done a lot of research in this period, and there were Irish uh, immigrants who prospered, and there were Irish immigrants, by the way, who prospered in horrible ways. They might go to Alabama and, and, and end up owning a plantation and a lot of slaves. But broadly speaking, uh, Irish immigrants were poor. Broadly speaking, Irish immigrants were discriminated against. This was a period of a mass movement against foreigners, against immigration in the United States. Uh, it began in earnest in the 1840s, became very powerful by around 1850. There were secret societies uh, who became known as the know-nothings, because if you asked a member of the society to tell you something about it, they'd say, I know nothing. In my research, I discovered that sometimes those people would be telling the truth. The societies were so secretive that the junior members might literally not even know the name of the organization. They just knew it was against foreigners. And they, by the mid-1850s, were becoming more and more public, more and more open and provocative and violent. They would go into immigrant neighborhoods and give speeches against immigrants knowing that that would provoke violence and then they would come back the next week and do it again and there would be riots in the streets and it became known as a very powerful political force. In the 1850s as the main political parties began to crack apart under the pressure of slavery some political leaders saw Hatred of foreigners is the thing that could unite people. And in the 1854 elections, the anti-immigrant parties, there were more than one, had overwhelming success, dominated the legislatures and governorships in many states, had a great deal of power in the United States Congress, and seemed poised maybe to elect a president in 1856. So uh, two other groups that are... Uh, characters in your story. First is the Native Americans. Yeah. Uh, we learn about them throughout through Fremont's exploits. Uh, they were increasingly being moved westward and encroached upon. What was yeah. life like for them in this uh, continent? It was a life of terrible pressure. Now, I should stress, this book is not written from the perspective of uh, American Indians or Native Americans. But they, they appear throughout they, the story. They, yeah. they appear, and they should. I have an earlier book, Jackson Land, uh, which is about Andrew Jackson and a Cherokee leader, John Ross. And, and in that project, I learned an enormous amount that I just simply did not know of the history of this country and the history of the nations that came before this country and were ultimately incorporated into it. John Charles Fremont was a witness to that and a participant in that from the earliest stages of his career. In the 1830s, as a very young man, he got a job as a surveyor and map maker in what is now northern Georgia in the Cherokee country. And his job was to make maps for the United States Army, which was getting ready to remove the Cherokees on what is now known as the Trail of Tears to west of the Mississippi. And the Army wanted the maps in case the Cherokees resisted, resisted so they would have good maps for the war that would follow. That war did not come, but Fremont drew the maps and gained experience. He then went west, and I think it is powerful to understand the various ways that this white man interacted with Indians, because he was going among them with the lamps of science and reason. He was not, in theory, there to massacre them, and yet he periodically did in several horrible instances, particularly in California and in Oregon. Uh, Yet at the same time, he depended on them. He would be traveling with small groups of men in the American West, and they would run out of coffee. 
and he was, as I am, uh, a habitual coffee drinker and found it, he couldn't, couldn't bear to be without it. But he found someone who would sell him coffee in the middle of this seeming wasteland. There was an economy, there was trade, and that person was a Native American. He hired Indians on his expeditions and was proud of the diversity of his expeditions. He was an army officer, he'd hire a bunch of civilians, and they would include a German immigrant mapmaker. They would include Frenchmen, French-speaking people whose families had been in and around St. Louis since it was French territory before the Louisiana Purchase. He would have other kinds of people. He would have African Americans as part of his expeditions, and he would hire Indians as well. And so there'd be multiple languages spoken around his campfires by multiple men, and he was proud of that even as he was a representative of this sort of white America sweeping across the country. This is one of the really important things that I learned and that I want to emphasize from this book is the variety of people who built the country, for better or worse. The variety of people who were risking their lives to make this a continental nation. Um, it is a difficult story to tell because so many people were slaughtered in the process or were shoved aside or, 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 or lost their land. But a great nation was being built and every kind of person was participating in it. So John C. Fremont, as he becomes this explorer, you describe him as something of a self-created character, even to the point of the accent over his yes. name. So what, what's important to know about the early Fremont and how he created the um, Fremont he would become? Let's begin with his birth. He was the illegitimate son of an immigrant. His father spelled his name slightly differently, not F-R-E-M-O-N-T, but F-R-E-M-O-N, Fremont. He was a Frenchman. And... He fell in love with a Virginia aristocrat who left her husband to go away with him. She never received a divorce, and so their first child, John, was born out of wedlock. And he tinkered with his name, as best I can determine, throughout his early years and into early adulthood. Uh, his father was Charles Fremont, sometimes John C. Fremont, John Charles Fremont would go as Charles. Sometimes he would be J.C. Sometimes the initials would be reversed and he'd be C.J. He changed the spelling of his last name, added the T, added a little accent mark over the E so that it was not Fremont, which would sound very French, but Fremont, which sounds kind of free and turned out to be a great name to, uh, to have years later when he was the presidential nominee of the Party of Freedom Against Slavery. But that gets at what a self-invented character he was, coming from these very difficult, modest, and I think it's fair to say humiliating circumstances. Being born out of wedlock was considered far more of a disgrace then than it would be considered today, and it was something that he and his wife attempted to hide. Um, he was not for money. He was a penniless army lieutenant. He was an army lieutenant even though he was not trained. He had not gone to West Point, but he had attached himself to a series of powerful men, including a South Carolina politician who became the Secretary of War, the equivalent of today's Secretary of Defense, and got him a U.S. Army Lieutenant's Commission. He was a guy who scrambled up from the bottom, although not always in the most admirable or appealing ways. How did he and Jesse Benton meet, and when did they marry after they, they met? They met through the father, Thomas Hart Benton. Benton, as a senator who thought of himself not just as a senator from Missouri, but the senator of the West, 
was very interested in John C. Fremont's early work as a kind of apprentice map maker for another explorer named Nicolette. And Senator Benton went by this office where uh, they were drawing up maps and met the young lieutenant, who was embarrassed because the map was not very far along. It was a largely blank map. But he attached himself to a powerful person again and got to know Senator Benton and ultimately got to know Senator Benton's daughter. Uh, Senator Benton did not approve of the marriage, but they eloped when Jesse was just 17 and John C. Fremont was 28. And uh, Senator Benton was said to be enraged. There are two or three different versions of the story, but ultimately had to accept that his daughter had not married some powerful official, which would have been quite common in Washington then, um, but this penniless lieutenant. And he went and placed a notice in a Washington newspaper. Now, you would expect that notice to say John Charles Fremont has married Jesse Benton Fremont, but Senator Benton put the names in the opposite order. Jesse Benton has married John C. Fremont. So he comes from a background that's, that's somewhat suited to this, but how did he get his first charge to lead an expedition, and how was it funded? Uh, it was through Senator Benton shortly after this elopement. Uh, it's a remarkable political story, I think, um, that Senator Benton was enraged that this young man had come and taken away his daughter, his most precious daughter, uh, of his children. And yet, within a few weeks, he had reconciled himself to that. This was a senator who had sometimes fought duels and gunfights against people and reconciled himself to them later. And Senator Benton, as a powerful senator who was in charge of a committee that oversaw the military, was able to use his influence to get John assigned to lead his first expedition. He was qualified. He had been the apprentice or second-in-command on various other expeditions, but it was Senator Benton's connections that made it possible. And it was Senator Benton's vision that John C. Fremont followed. His early expeditions were to map the Oregon Trail, to entice Americans to go settle the Oregon country, which was disputed with Great Britain. And the idea was that lots of American settlers there would make it part of the United States inevitably. And so this senator was, in a way, pursuing his own foreign policy, which was a little bit different than the actual president at the time, John Tyler, but Senator Benton did it anyway. We visited uh, Bend, Oregon, which is part of the area that he explored, mm. and, and met a photographer-historian who has done some of what you've done, uh, mapping the route that John C. Fremont took. I want to show a video uh, to show the topography as it looks today. Let's watch that. I don't really think that it has changed any since he was here. There isn't much erosion of this lava, so this is the first big pitch of Dylan Falk. I think it's pretty cool that he writes about it in his journal and, and uh, we can stand here and be in a place where Fremont was in, um, 170-some years ago. You're able through his journals to recreate in your book a lot of his journey. It was tough going. Oh, my gosh. And just looking at that video, my first thought is at some point they had to cross that river. And there wasn't going to be a there wasn't going to be a bridge. They might go look for a ford where the water was a little bit calmer, but everything could be brutal. And Fremont was often traveling in the mountains, in very high mountains, in winter, and it could be devastating. It could be deadly. They would be trying to pass through snow that was many feet deep. The horse's legs or the mule's legs would sink down into the snow, and the only way the men could proceed was by themselves making a road by taking what was called a mall and just pounding down the snow for days to make this little path 
that the animals could then walk on, the animals would be dying, and so the men would eat the animals because they were also running out of food. Sometimes the men themselves, on one particular expedition, would starve to death. It was an extraordinarily difficult series of expeditions that the commander, John C. Fremont, made more difficult in search of new discoveries or in search of fame. He climbed mountains he had no need to climb. He tried to strike out to find new paths through difficult mountains, which sounds like a great thing to do, except he would do it in the middle of winter. Uh, it's remarkable that he himself didn't die, uh, but instead it seems that he thrived off of this difficulty. He, as a very young man, recited in school a speech by a South Carolina politician who talked about the American landscape as creating a new kind of person, as being suitable for the residents of freemen who would show their character or mold their character in wrestling with that difficult landscape. You read that speech from 1812 and you realize Frederick Jackson Turner's famous frontier thesis from several generations later was actually a very old idea in America. John C. Fremont thought he was doing that, that he was proving himself against that landscape. And he would sometimes even gain weight on these missions while others of his men were falling apart and dying. So what do you think of his leadership skills? Uh, he was persistent, which was great, except when it became stubbornness. He could be decisive, except when he failed to be. He would pursue a course much longer than he should have. He needed to be in charge himself, which is why he generally did well, or at least survived, when he was out in the wilderness and away from his commanders. But he was not good at following orders, whether it was uh, uh, an army officer who was overseeing his early expeditions or whether it was President Lincoln later in his life. He would, be, he would defy his superior officers almost all the time. And once he was actually court-martialed for getting into a dispute with his superior officer in the army in California. So he went south from Oregon to California. You've described his conquest of California as one of the most consequential acts in the history of the United States. Yeah. Why? Well, let's just start with something we mentioned earlier about trade routes. Uh, the capture of the Pacific Coast turned the United States into a Pacific power with direct trade routes to Asia and made possible in a much more direct way, the economic activity that dominates our economy up to this day and that we argue about up to this day. In a more immediate sense, the conquest of California simply made the United States rich because it was captured in the late 1840s just in time for the gold rush of 1848-1849. The conquest of California and several what became several other states as well also made the United States, in a very real way, part of Latin America, because the United States captured the northern portion of it, along with all the people who lived there. And so this European power that had been founded by land taken from Indians on the Atlantic coast, that faced Europe, became a nation that faced in another direction, and became a much more diverse place with uh, a greater variety of traditions and cultures that were part of the country. It made the United States the nation of the world, which is how we think of America even today. And it was becoming possible at that moment of conquest with all of its downsides. How many total expeditions did he make? There were five. 
And one of those was an extensive scouting of California. Yes. It read like he was doing real estate speculation. Yes. Yes, this is the most amazing thing. He went into California in the winter of 1845-1846. The president, James K. Polk, definitely knew he was going. It wasn't entirely clear what Polk wanted him to do there. It was Mexican territory, and here's a U.S. Army officer going in effectively as an illegal immigrant. He told the Mexican authorities he was just scouting some new route to Oregon that maybe would go through part of California. Uh, But then he just lingered and lingered in California um, and irritated the Mexican authorities more and more by going near their settled areas, which he said he would stay away from. And yes, according to his own memoir, he gave a variety of explanations over the years for his behavior, but according to his memoir, he was looking for land uh, by Santa Cruz, someplace on the shore where he could live with his mother. He was looking for beachfront property. As so many people who've moved to California over the generations since have, that's what he wanted to do. And his activities provoked the Mexican authorities and started a chain of events that ended up with the United States conquering California. It is a bizarre, bizarre tale, but there's not a lot of reason to doubt John C. Fremont's motivations as he describes them, because he sort of was that self-involved from time to time. So we have a U.S. Army officer who is going against orders, and he's doing land speculation, which will ultimately enrich himself. Yes. Was this not viewed as corrupt at that time? It was viewed a little differently, I think, partly because it was out of view, um, and partly because the notions of ethics then were not what they would be later. Uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, as a military officer, dealt in real estate in a grand way in the uh, American South in an earlier generation, and some people would accuse him of corruption, but he could just kind of laugh it off and see it otherwise. Some people accused John C. Fremont of corruption, of supporting his own interests as a politician, which he undeniably did. Uh, Some people questioned his right to land that he obtained from Mexicans during the actual war against Mexico uh, by getting land grants of dubious legality and then fighting to have them upheld in American courts. His activities were questioned, but never prosecuted, never fully seen as absolutely wrong. There were things that he could do more or less in the open, and some people would criticize them, but it didn't seem to matter. So of that time when he was away, he would send back the journals or record these journals. I want to go back to that video that we showed before because there's one other piece uh, where it's a reading from one of the journals. Let's watch and we'll talk about how you used them. Sure. Today the country was all pine forest and beautiful weather made our journey delightful. It was too warm at noon for winter clothes and the snow which lay everywhere in patches through the forest was melting rapidly. After a few hours' ride, we came upon a fine stream in the middle of the forest, which proved to be the principal branch of Fall River. It was occasionally 200 feet wide, sometimes narrowed to 50 feet, the waters very clear and frequently deep. We ascended along the river, which sometimes presented sheets of foaming cascades, its banks occasionally blackened with masses of scoriated rock, and found a good encampment on the verge of an open bottom, which had been an old camping ground for the Cayuse Indians. Did he keep those journals in real time or remember when he came back? Uh, I think he remembered when he came back. By the way, I love how marked up that gentleman's <laughs> copy of the book is. Um, they were published into books even at the time? Uh, yes, they were published in books in, in, at, at the time. He, he definitely kept a lot of notes uh, on his journey, but what has come down to us are 
reports of his expeditions that he wrote after he returned to Washington with the aid of his wife, Jessie Benton Fremont, who would be his stenographer, secretary, editor, sometimes ghostwriter, co-author, just depending on which bit of writing we're, we're talking about. Um, that makes them not perhaps 100% reliable. They were edited to be pretty, but where facts are checkable, they often check out. Well, you have a, a quote from her in the beginning of the book that sort of tells the story about her approach to being completely candid. What's the quote? <laughs> she wrote, it would hardly do to tell the whole truth about everything. And then that telegraph, which was getting popular, was sending these reports around the country? Yeah, that was part of what was happening. Uh, his reports would be excerpted in newspapers, and they would be read everywhere, and they would also be printed by multiple publishers as popular books. Uh, I think of them as bestsellers. I, I don't know that I can literally document that they would be a New York Times bestseller since the New York Times didn't exist yet. But they were very, very popular. And it's remarkable to look at the story of, for example, the Mormons uh, who were living in Illinois at that time and looking for a place to relocate farther west. Um, they, in their own newspaper, printed excerpts of Fremont's uh, reports about uh, the Great Salt Lake and then had portions of his report read at a public reading inside a Mormon temple with Brigham Young attending. And so it seems very clear that Fremont's explorations in that part of the world influenced the choice of the Mormons to go to the Salt Lake area and create their own, what ultimately became their own state there. So you tell the story that as Jesse became famous through his exploits, uh, excuse me, as, as uh, John became, Jesse Fremont was yeah. also becoming much better known. Yeah. This was a time when the abolition movement was starting up, uh, when women were starting to uh, really begin to push for more rights in society. Did yeah. she ascribe, did she use her fame for those causes at she all? She totally did. It's fascinating to me that she became a symbol of women's rights and a symbol of opposition to slavery because she didn't have a really deep record in either of them. 1848, of course, is the time of the famous Seneca Falls Convention where women uh, declared that all men and women are created equal and, and called for women's suffrage and for other rights as well. Jesse Benton Fremont was alive then but wasn't there. She wasn't a participant in that movement. Uh, in fact, there is a quote from a little bit later in which Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the great women's rights activist, asked Jesse Benton Fremont for a financial contribution to their cause, and Jesse initially said, I don't know, I think women in their present condition manage men better. She ultimately did come around to supporting the right to vote, but she wasn't a radical feminist in that way. Nevertheless, she was a very ambitious woman who became a more and more public woman, and when her husband was nominated for president, women seized upon her as a symbol. Women had been politically active not only on behalf of themselves, white women I should say, but on behalf of uh, uh, opposition to slavery. Uh, women of all races were participants in the anti-slavery movement and were politically active in that way. And when the Republican Party uh, announced itself as a fundamentally anti-slavery uh, party, they were favoring at least the limiting the expansion of slavery, uh, Jesse was taken up as a symbol of their cause. And women became involved in the campaign in ways that women never had. They attended campaign rallies and worked for the election of John C. Fremont, even though they couldn't vote. So the Fremonts ended up moving to California for a time. You yeah. mentioned that their speculation was wildly successful. They became very rich through yes. gold, gold yes. discovery of gold. They did. Uh, at the time of the gold rush, uh, John 
had obtained an enormous amount of land and took a guess that since gold was being discovered elsewhere, it must be on his land too. And he encountered a group of Mexican migrants who were coming from uh, Sonora, Mexico, who had experience mining for gold. And he sent them to his land to mine for gold, to, and they would share the profits. And they found a ridiculous fortune, which took him a good 25 years to completely blow, although mm -hmm. eventually he blew it all. How did he get, or the couple actually, get from that point to the 1856 Republican nomination? Um, Fremont's fame, John's fame, was a huge part of it. In the 1840s, after a, 1850s, excuse me, after a brief period uh, running around Europe and California, they resettled in Washington, D.C., and they had ambitions. John had briefly been a U.S. Senator from California. He wanted to do something more, and people began reaching out to them. This was a period of extreme political division. There were going to be multiple parties running in 1856. The Democrats were the most established party. The Whigs had been an established party who were falling apart. There were these anti-immigrant groups, and there were the Republicans. And both the Democrats and Republicans at different times reached out to this guy to be their potential presidential nominee because he was super famous, he was regarded as a gigantic hero, and he had a relatively short political record which could be molded for everybody's convenience, and that might be the way to get somebody elected in such a divisive time where anybody who had a strong stance on anything would just be hated by a large part of the population. The Democrats tried to recruit him first. The Republicans ultimately, in a sense, made a better a better offer or seemed a better fit. And Jesse was a huge part of this. There were wise men of Washington, let's call them. Francis Preston Blair would be the most famous one. Of Blair House. Fame. Yes, Blair House. That's where he lived. It was one of his houses in Washington, D.C. Uh, he had an estate called Silver Spring, which is now the general location of a city outside of, of uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. He had been a counselor to multiple Democratic presidents, was alienated from the Democratic Party, and because of Jesse, who was a friend of his, because of her request, he began advising John C. Fremont and helped to craft his campaign as he maneuvered for the first-ever Republican nomination. For people who decry how divisive our politics are today, what was the 1856 campaign oh, like? Oh, my goodness. It was brutal, and it uh, feels kind of familiar because of the way the issues were fought. This was an election in which people on both sides felt that everything was at stake. And that's another way that this story of the 1850s feels like now. It wasn't just the fear of losing an election, but the fear of losing for all time. There was a huge demographic change going on in the country. The North and South had been somewhat evenly balanced, but the North was becoming much more populous, which meant it was much more powerful. And for the first time, it was possible, plausible anyway, to elect a president with Northern votes alone, which would bypass the South bypass slave states. That's why it was even possible to have an anti-slavery party at all. This is what the Republicans were trying to do. And the South found that profoundly threatening. They said, if you're going to cut us out of power in this way, we're going to leave the Union. They were making that threat openly in 1856, years before the Civil War. Republicans also had a narrative in which they were threatened uh, forever if the South was allowed to expand uh, slavery into western states and gain more and more power that way. So the stakes felt very high. 
John C. Fremont was nominated, very famous guy, very widely admired, and his opponents very quickly changed that. First, they revealed a uh, secret he tried to keep with his wife's help that he was the illegitimate son of an immigrant. Then they turned him into an immigrant, falsely declared that he'd been born outside the United States and was ineligible to be president. Uh, so they were birthers in 1856. And then they declared that he was secretly a member of an alien, scary, un-American religion, Catholicism, which was treated then as perhaps we will see, we have seen Islam treated from time to time in our, in our age. Uh, he wasn't Catholic. He had spent time with Catholics. But stories were spread, and they became very, very hard to deny. And this was a moment when Republicans were trying to quietly win the votes of anti-immigrant voters. They wanted to win them on opposition to slavery, but they couldn't upset them too much on this other issue. And so it was massively damaging in such a prejudiced electorate for Fremont to be called a Catholic. Um, it was a very, very bitter campaign. Remarkably, to me anyway, Fremont never denied the accusation and argued that if he had gotten up and said, I am not a Catholic, that would be admitting that a Catholic was not fit to be president, and he wasn't willing to say that, wasn't willing to do that. James Buchanan won the election. Yes. He is on every survey and the, the bottom position as the worst candidate in yes. U.S. history. Yes. Would the country have been better off if John C. Fremont had won? Uh, there are various theories of that, and there were by contemporaries at the time. Maybe, maybe not. You're exactly right about Buchanan, and what an embarrassment to lose a presidential election to the worst president in, in history. He's the guy who presided over the further drift toward the Civil War. But some of Fremont's contemporaries, looking back long after the Civil War, said if John had won in 1856, the South would have seceded then rather than later when Lincoln won. And the president for the Civil War would have been John C. Fremont instead of Abraham Lincoln. And they sh some of them shuddered to think of that. Uh, for Including all his father-in-law. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, his father-in-law did not live to see the Civil War but never supported his presidential campaign. Uh, never seemed to think that John had the judgment really to be president. So it's one of the ironies of history that, uh, according even to his contemporaries and, and supporters, John C. Fremont did the nation a great service by running for president, establishing the Republican Party, trying out the electoral strategy that Abraham Lincoln would ultimately succeed with, but also did the nation a favor by losing and never actually being president. In your epilogue, you asked the question, for all their flaws, did the Fremonts help to build a more just and equal nation? Is that the answer to it? I think so. I think that through their efforts, in, in fact, in some ways, in spite of their, their best efforts to the contrary, they did. They were part of a messy, ugly, complicated process that ultimately ended with a great leap in human progress, the end of slavery, human slavery in the United States. Uh, it's profoundly ugly how it happened. A lot of the people who were positive actors in that story were racist by any measure we would look at today and even by some measures that you would look at then. Uh, they're very, very complicated characters, but they had a moment in which they had their hands, John and Jesse did, on the tiller of history and helped to move it a little bit helped to expand the United States, helped to give the United States a Pacific coast, and made a statement 
however hesitant, however flawed, made a statement in 1856 on behalf of freedom. So in January of this year, I think, you wrote an opinion piece based on the Fremonts mm -hmm. for the New York Times, and it concluded this way. What are the lessons for 2020? Expect a terrifying year. What drives Americans to extremes is not losing an election, but fear of losing for all time. When politicians exploit such fears, voters can find an antidote by recalling the aftermath of 1856. Whatever the result in 2020, and it's a safe bet that close to half of us will consider it a disaster, another election will follow, we hope. We hope, yes. So what are you saying there? What I'm saying is that we should try to keep perspective. We are in a time where people fear that an election lost will be a loss for all time. That is something that drove President Trump into office. He told his supporters in 2016, and I'm quoting here, this is your last chance, your last chance to win an election, because if we lose this election, illegal immigrants will flood the country and be legalized, and or the conservatives or Republicans will never be able to win an election again. That was a theory that the president shared, the future president shared with his supporters. Uh, there is still that fear on that side. Now you also have Democrats who are fearful because of the way the president governs, that if he is not defeated soon, that the nation will never recover and that, that they will lose, their side will lose forever. That is something that does push people to extremes. And I want to be at least a little bit mindful, at least a little bit hopeful, that there will be, or at least there should be, Another election after this one, and another election after that, and always in American history up to now, there has. One of the great strengths of democracy is that power of renewal. And we can screw up things so much, and even maybe not realize in the moment how badly we're screwing them up. But we get another chance, and another chance, and another chance after that, as long as we can keep it up. So we have about eight, nine minutes left, and I want to talk about, about you at the end. Sure. For a lot of people, your voice is so familiar. Uh, Thank you. You have a, a, a duty every morning on National Public Radio to anchor the, uh, the Morning Edition program. How did you find the time? This is an extensively researched book, uh, which took you on travels around the country. How did you find the time to do both? Uh, part of it is my ridiculous work hours. I get to work at about 4 o'clock in the morning, and every day is different. Some days you just work 12, 14, 18 hours. You know, the big interview that you have is late in the day or whatever happens. But other days can be a little shorter, and you escape after eight hours. You escape at noon, and I'm here in Washington, D.C., and I can go down the street to a spot not far from where we're sitting now, the Library of Congress, and I might be able to steal two or three hours in the archives. And they have amazing, amazing collections at the Library of Congress. You can go in and read... Uh, hold in your hand a letter that John C. Fremont wrote to one of his political sponsors in 1835. Uh, I spent years there for various books. You can hold even older letters that Andrew Jackson wrote his wife in 1814 or whatever. It's a remarkable collection, and it's also possible there to search databases of 19th century newspapers in ways that were not possible a generation ago. And now you can just access enormous amounts of material. So part of it was just I was lucky to be close uh, where I could do a lot of that research. And part of it was my day job fed my night job. I mean, given how early I started, I'm not sure which is the day job and which is the night job. But in any case, uh, one fed the other because 
I'm covering the news now, and it feels to me like it resonates with this news of another time. And the historical research absolutely influences what I tell you every day on the radio. And what I learn in the process of working uh, for NPR absolutely has informed the way that I've researched the past. You took your family along and recreated some of these trips yourself. Uh, yeah. How, what was it like living with these characters? You started in 2016 for these, these past four years. Did you like them? Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Let me, let me, I should clarify, it's not like I went and camped out in the woods with, right. with my children. <laughs> now, you can drive highways and so forth and some of the routes that uh, Fremont took, but I went and saw the landscape in California and Oregon and Nevada, and it's amazing. And I've seen a lot of the other landscape in my previous travels as a journalist, and it's it's all inspiring. Um, but, now wait a minute, what was so your question? So it was really, a, it yeah. was a double question, yeah. which is not good in our profession. So your family enjoyed going on these exploits? I think so. At least the, the time away from oh, them yeah, to, the, to focus but on But, you know, that, that, that was the other thing, like, did I like these characters? I don't know that I absolutely like them, Jesse's a little more likable than John. They both have their their unpleasant moments. Um, but I felt that I related to them in a way uh, because they were ambitious, because they were trying to have a family at the same time that they were being ambitious. Um, I look at John Fremont as a bit of a cautionary tale. I travel an amount for my work. Uh, he would go away for a year. He would go away for a couple of years and leave his wife at home with the kids and she would try to fit into that life any way that she could. She might travel partway west with him on one of the expeditions or say, I'll meet you in California, even though it's pretty, pretty hairy to get there by ship the way that I'm going to go. Um, and it, when you are a parent and you read such things about another parent, you, one thing you hope is, gosh, I hope I'm not quite like that. Uh, I hope that I, I'm able to to balance my life a little bit better and maybe not be away quite so long. It motivates you even more than I already am to maybe cut a trip a day short when I can get away with it and get, get home a little bit quicker. Um, so you relate to the challenge that they faced as human beings and you relate to the politics because they are participants in this same drama that we're sitting here as citizens participating in, not just watching, but participating in as members of a democratic society. And sometimes you do ask, would I do that? Uh, and in many cases, I hope I wouldn't do that. But I also, I, I want to say for John, uh, you have to admire the guy's persistence. He went out and risked his life again and again and again. Uh, and you can say he was risking his life just for himself, but he believed it was for a higher cause. Well, when you talk about current politics, um, C-SPAN viewers are well aware of the fact that NPR, your organization, and the Trump administration have had some crossed wires over the past few months. Mary Louise Kelly and, and Secretary Pompeo, also the president's budget has cutbacks for NPR in it. What's your take on all of that and how NPR gets caught in the cross-currents? Well, um the uh, incident with uh, Secretary Pompeo and Mary Louise Kelly, I think, is pretty clear. Uh, she asked him questions. The documentary record shows, as NPR and others have reported, that he knew what, what subjects would be covered. Uh, he didn't want to answer certain questions, and that was clear from the interview. They had a discussion afterward that the Secretary has not in any way denied, uh, and then accused her of lying, which is obviously false and disproven by the, the record. So that seems all fairly clear and, and well reported. Um, <clears throat> it's part of a larger push and pull, though, between 
the news media and this administration or any administration, uh, our job as reporters is to try to get at the facts, to try to be honest, to try to be fair, to listen to all sides, and sometimes in the process of that, we're going to make people uncomfortable, and that's okay. And we will also own our mistakes when we make them, and NPR is an organization that has made any number of corrections over the years as well. Uh, the debate over public funding, I don't have a lot to say about that. I don't think that I need to say a lot about that, except that there has been tremendous support for NPR over the years. And everyone should be clear that the largest single source of support for NPR is the people who use the service. And that's true. It's with station after station after station. There are local stations in local communities that are supported by people who live there. And they bring in NPR as part of their individual station's programming. And that's the way it works. And it has, over the years, been supported by Republicans, been supported by Democrats. And I'll stay out of the debate over where it should go next, except to note that in the past, up to now, it's had tremendous bipartisan support. You tell us that you got interested in the Fremonts from childhood reading. Is there a, another set of characters that you're interested in for your next book? Oh, uh, you know, I don't quite know. Um, I've been fascinated by Abraham Lincoln for a long time. It's tempting to go after Lincoln as a subject, uh, but do, do you need to write the 15,000th book about Abraham Lincoln? I don't know. I might explore that a little bit. But I, uh, one of my problems, maybe, uh, is that I'm interested in everything, <laughs> and I'm interested in many different phases of history. And having written a couple of books about the years before the Civil War, it's tempting to go in some other entire direction. Um, and uh, I don't know where I'm going to go yet. What's the title from? Imperfect Union? Imperfect Union? What is it from? Uh, it's just something that occurred to me as having a double meaning. It refers to the imperfect union of the time, this division between North and South, between free and slave, uh, and the effort to make it better. And it also refers to the union between John and Jesse Fremont, a sometimes difficult marriage with certain struggles in it, uh, and a degree of failure and also extraordinary, extraordinary success. The full title is Imperfect Union, How Jesse and John Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War. Steve Inskeep, thanks for the hour. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.